1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Lord, establish us without blame in holiness. Work in our lives, Lord. Attract our attention. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. And would you teach us this morning, Father, Holy Spirit, teach us your word. Now reveal, Lord, divine truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians, a simple outline for this letter can be found. If you look at chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, We are constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. The outline's right there. The first chapter through about chapter 3, verse 10, recognizes the work of faith. That's part 1. Part 2 of this letter, beginning in about verse 11 of chapter 3 and going through verse 12 of chapter 4, refocuses the labor of love. And then finally in verse 13 of chapter 4, through the end of the letter, it reinforces the steadfastness of hope. And there's your outline. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope divides up the book really well. Chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 12, and then chapter 14, verse 13, through the end of the letter in those three parts. But throughout this letter, what Paul is writing to do is to encourage perseverance and expectancy. That attitude that was so prevalent in the early church, absolutely prevalent among the apostles, and that is to live lives of perseverance, sticking to it, faithfulness, And expectancy. So what's interesting, and I think what really works for perseverance, is you're not persevering for 40 years. You're persevering today, expecting that by the end of the day, Jesus may very well come. It makes perseverance a whole lot easier to do when you're living a life of expectancy as well. If you're sitting here thinking, I've got 60 more years to go, perseverance is tough. But if you're like, all I have to do is persevere right now, because Jesus is coming, you find 60 years have gone by and you've been persevering the entire time. That is key in this faith walk. And it's not blinding ourselves, it's not tricking ourselves into persevering by falsely believing Jesus is going to come imminently. No, Jesus said, I am coming, and I'm coming quickly. I am coming back. My return will be soon. It was an attitude that Jesus wanted us to have uh, of being ready, of living lives expectantly, which then charges our perseverance. We are called not to be lulled into lethargy. It happens all too easily. You know, someone blazes up in their faith, comes to Jesus and is excited right out of the gate, but then slowly it eases back. And to me, no, it ought to be a crescendo. 
But it can only be a crescendo of perseverance if I am expecting His coming at any turn. And I am. And I've shared with you all before, I am surprised that this church has been here this long. I truly am. Those are not just words. We began the fellowship, and I thought a few years maybe. And then when a few years went by and it was a few more, I thought, okay, now we're really pushing our luck. And now we are absolutely in overtime. And it's not just the experience of this fellowship. Have you been paying attention to what's going on in Israel, in Jerusalem right now? Some of you aren't because we haven't had people backing out of the trip yet. (laughs) Those of you who are going, we'll we'll meet in September, we'll talk about everything that's going on, and, and don't worry, it'll be fine. But the Temple Mount is once again at the center of the entire world. Israel's at the center of world attention, Jerusalem at the center of that, and the Temple Mount in the center of Jerusalem is even more so. The whole world's looking at this place. The Muslim Waqf, that's W-A-Q-F, the the authority over the Temple Mount, they don't even want to go on to the Temple Mount because the uh, Israelis have put metal detectors up to keep people from bringing live weapons onto the Temple Mount. We're not going to go on the Temple Mount if we have to go through metal detectors. (laughs) And so there's this contention there, and, and the Israeli government is saying, tough. And I'm so glad they're saying tough. You know, stand up. For the first time since 1967, at least the last few days, Israel has had control over the Temple Mount itself, has been wielding authority there. That's interesting to me. They gave up that control when they took Jerusalem in 1967. But for for all the things that are happening to be going on, we keep watching, we keep paying attention. Jesus said, pay attention to the parable of the fig tree, the fig tree representing Israel. When its leaves are tender, you know that summer is near. And so all that's going on there does play into what's happening here in our lives, in our world where the increase of lawlessness is causing the love of most to grow cold, where the attitude of hostility and, and just, boy, there's no manners anymore. Have you been in our foyer on a Sunday morning? No manners. <laughs> but everything is rolling to a, to a conclusion that God told us would happen, that He was clear about. And so we are called to live lives that are ready. Urgent lives. Expectant lives. And in this expectancy, you might say then, okay, how are we to live? You say, persevere with expectancy. Now that sounds good. Those are nice talking points, Rick. But what does that mean? How does that translate into tomorrow and the next day, today through Wednesday, Wednesday through Sunday? How does it translate into what I'm doing with my life? I am so glad you asked. Because I believe a key principle that has been lost in much of the church is a term that is used exclusively for the people of God. Originally it was used of Israel. Now it is used of the church. It will again be used of Israel in days to come. But that word is saints. Hagias in the Greek. Holy ones. Those who are made holy, made righteous by blood sacrifice. It was applied to Israel. Israel throughout the Hebrew scriptures are called the Kadosh, the holy ones. Because they were temporarily covered by blood sacrifice. 
The temple sacrifices, the ongoing daily sacrifices that the Jewish people had to bring before the Father gave temporary covering so that the Lord could pass over their sins until they could ultimately and fully be paid for. But they were able to be called saints, holy ones, because there was temporary covering. Now the blood of animals can't save anyone. And the Lord made that clear to the Jewish people. But it was a sign of remembrance to the Lord for the blood that would be shed by Jesus. And because of that, the Lord was willing to say, I will call you holy now. Like Abraham, I will credit you with righteousness now because that righteousness is going to be paid for then. So He called the Jewish people saints. Then Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross, the perfect sacrifice, paying the penalty, taking on the full and entire wrath of God for all of our sins, so that now, by faith in Jesus, we are saints. We are holy ones. Please get that. It is not based on your behavior or mine. It is not based on our self-generated rightness. No, it is His righteousness that has been poured out on us, that allows us to be called saints. But now that we're called saints, what does that mean? It means I can live that way. Before it would have been a joke. Now it is a possibility. Because God has made it real in my life. I am a saint. And I haven't even been canonized. (laughs) I'm a saint and I didn't have to go through beatification. I'm a saint of the living God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when I recognize that sainthood that has been given to me, now, you know what it does to my heart? makes me want to live like a saint. I am tired, and I would just say this so you all know clearly where I'm coming from. I am tired of Christians living as less than saints. Tired of us in the church portraying non-holy lives, groping culture rather than grasping righteousness. To be called a saint of the living God allows me to pursue that sainthood. Looking at today's Christian culture, I really wonder, do we pursue purity anymore? I'm not talking about you personally. I'm not talking about our fellowship necessarily, but the church in general. Are we hungering for holiness? Do we seek saintly lives? Two interesting uh, articles that I saw on Friday in Friday's news feed. First one was out of the Telegraph UK, and here's the headline. It was the headlines that caught my attention. This was interesting. Justin Bieber banned from China in order to purify the nation. Unbelievable! Justin Bieber made the blacklist along with Oasis uh, previously, and I think Lady Gaga was on that list, although she's off the list now, so clearly they're not wanting to be too pure. He has been banned from performing in China. Why? Quote, to purify the entertainment culture. This is a Chinese government, folks, trying to purify their culture. By banning Bieber. I read that and went, huh. When was the last time our government ever banned a lewd or crude performer to purify the entertainment business? That's unheard of because we have free speech. The next article... (laughs) 
is out of the Guardian.com, and I just think about the contrast here. Here's China over here, and I am no, by no means supportive of Chinese communism and the persecution of the church that goes on, continues to go on in China at all. But here's this, this statement about seeking purity in the entertainment business in China, and here in America, just recently, a couple of weeks back now, in Illinois, there was a music festival called Audio Feed. Audio feed. It is, uh, this was in theguardian.com, and the title of the article was God and Metal Scenes from a Christian Hardcore Music Festival. The music festival is called Audio Feed, Christian Hardcore, Christian Metal. Now, you need to understand my attitude on music is music is neither sinful nor is it holy. Music is music. Music is a, is a tool that allows then the lyric to get in. So I'm not necessarily opposed to uh, what you would call hardcore bands because the message is what matters as far as I'm concerned. You might not like the music, you might not like the screaming and the driving, but if the message is the message of purity and Christ and holiness and and God, then the message is what's going to be heard. Music just opens our minds for the message to get in. You can listen to a nice, easy country ballad, but if the words are sinful, it's no good. So don't be confused by the styles of music. That's not my issue here. But this was the article that was written about Audio Feed, this Christian hardcore festival. The uh, phototog who was writing the article said, I came to this festival to get a clearer picture of what the next generation of, quote, post-culture war evangelicals will look like. What I found was a surprisingly diverse cross-section of evangelicalism, a predictable share of conservatives and charismatics, but also a vocal contingent of, quote, progressive evangelicals. Have you heard that term before? Progressive evangelicals. Including a transgender teen who claims to have come both to Christ and to come out as transgender at the same festival. Another attendee, Josh, an urban ministries major in Chicago, said, At Moody Bible Institute, I've learned homosexuality, sex, drinking, and marijuana have been demonized. In other words, they're okay. I get struggling with faith. I understand engaging the culture. But I highly doubt that D.L. Moody would have taught that homosexuality, sex, drinking, and marijuana are things that should be embraced or celebrated. In fact, what D.L. Moody said was, quote, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. He said, lighthouses blow no horns. They just shine. He said, no one can sum up all God is able to accomplish through one solitary life, wholly yielded, adjusted, and obedient to Him. Which means, regardless of fashion, sense, or musical styles... That the life yielded to God is the life of perseverance and expectancy. We are called to yield to Him. We are called to be holy and not to be those who embrace the look of culture. The attitude of society. John said in 1 John 3 verse 2, We know that when Jesus appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself. Just as He is pure. And the word purifies comes from hagios. To be a saint is to be pure. 
To purify self as Jesus is pure is to be saintly as Jesus is saintly. And in the first century, this was the attitude that Paul and the apostles worked so hard to teach. Why? Because so many of the fledgling churches, especially in Asia and in Europe, they were people coming right out of Greek paganism. Coming out of of mythological backgrounds, believing in in false gods and, and polytheistic understanding, there were clearly problems of immorality from the very lifestyles that had to be addressed and dealt with as these people were becoming saints of God. As Paul taught in Philippi and Thessalonica, as he went to Berea and then down to Athens and Corinth and made his way across to Ephesus. In this second missionary journey, the the people he was teaching were largely non-Jewish, although there were a number of Jews depending on the place. And so they didn't even have any moral compass whatsoever other than what Rome taught or they got at the pagan temples. So the, the issue of sainthood, understand these were people who were being drawn out of their culture, not told to embrace and continue to live the way they had always lived. And what the church today, especially progressive evangelicals, the church in America needs to get is, man, we are not to just settle into culture. Be like the world around us. We are called out to be different, to be saints of the Most High God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the word holy also comes from Hagias. Saints, purified, holy. That is our calling. I would say don't call yourself a Christian if you're not willing to pursue purity. If you're not seeking after sainthood. If you're not hungering for holiness. Now in the second chapter of of this letter, Paul addressed the opposition that would naturally arise from society against the saints. Because of the very holiness that they are called to, they're called out, they're called to look different, and that's going to shake things up a bit. So Paul says, but that opposition, that, that's going to come. He acknowledges the challenge that, that, uh, that was facing the Thessalonian believers as he picks up then in chapter 3, verse 1. Now track this through with me. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Now, let me point something out that I just kind of ran across. I think it's interesting. It doesn't really matter that much in our study. But Paul is down in Athens. Timothy and Silas come down. They meet him in Athens. And Paul is so concerned about Thessalonica because he had been driven out of there so quickly that he sends Timothy right back. Some think that he sent Timothy with a letter. 2 Thessalonians. That that letter actually was sent with Timothy first. And then when Timothy comes back and meets Paul down in Corinth, Paul then writes 1 Thessalonians. And that's an interesting perspective and it actually answers a lot of theological questions. I don't think it matters for our study because we're going to digest both letters and we're just going to take them first and second. 
But regardless of the order of the letters, Paul sends Timothy back because he's so concerned for this fledgling church. Why is he concerned? The determination of affliction. I gave you some things to jot down. That's number one this morning. The determination of affliction. That is, afflictions are determined for the saints. Opposition must come. We spent most of Wednesday night talking about opposition. You read chapter 2, Paul discusses the opposition that comes to those who have been called out, to those who are saints of the Most High God. The determination of affliction, we have been destined for this, Paul says. Hardships are determined. Will come, must happen. This is not an Eeyore perspective. It's the road we're on. It's par for the course. And Paul knew it personally. Again, we talked about this midweek, but Acts chapter 9, verse 15, God is talking to Ananias, who would be sent then to Paul to baptize him. And Ananias is saying, wait a minute, you're sending me to Saul? That that persecutor? And the Lord says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, Acts 9, 15. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And suffer, Paul did. Hugely. I don't think there's a one of us in here who have suffered the way the Apostle Paul suffered in his life. He gives a whole litany of this loss and suffering and hardship in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Two verses out of that, verse 24 and 25, he says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Why 39? Because 40 will kill you. So you come up one short. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and he's not talking about cannabis. And he goes on to talk about the difficulty of his life and the hardship of Christian living. How difficult it is to come into a culture that is so pagan and be so different, but bring a message of such joy and truth. And it was a hard life. And it is the course of the saint. And I wasn't taught that very much growing up. I heard it sometimes. In the church, I I have seen far too much licking our wounds from self-imposed damage than realizing our persecution comes because we are so different than the world in which we live. Because we embrace our sainthood. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so some Christians say, well, then why am I not persecuted? My question is, do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? There's an awful lot of Christians living, quote-unquote, in Christ Jesus. They'll go to church on occasion. They'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. They'll wear the cross on a little necklace. But to live godly in Christ Jesus... To be different. To have different language coming out of my mouth. To treat people differently than everyone around me. To not engage in the things of culture that are so anti-God and are so sinful, but instead to be pure. Listen, the more pure you are, the more you will be chastised for it. The more you live like Jesus, the more the world around you will persecute you for it. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, going to be persecuted. The determination of affliction. 
And Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Brethren, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Now, on Wednesday night, we saw that opposition and affliction are actually nutrients of a vibrant faith. That when that opposition comes, and when the persecution hits, it actually, for someone who is seeking after holiness, it strengthens your faith. It emboldens you with the gospel. It does the opposite of what you might expect. Now, we don't go looking for it. We're not trying to be a persecuted people. But we know simply for naming Jesus as Lord, it will come. And the more we pursue holiness, the more it will come. But with it, strength, nourishment, empowerment for the road ahead. Why is it this way? Why is it Christianity has to take such hits? Following after Judaism, which took and continues to take all kinds of hits. Why is holy living the subject of such intense persecution? Wouldn't you think non-holy people wouldn't care? That they would just brush off the Christian seeking purity is just kind of weird and just let them alone? Why the persecution? Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world... And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil, listen, hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So by simply being light, those who are living in darkness around you, they don't want it. They're going to push back against it. And so we're not to be caught off guard by opposition. No, Romans 8.18, we consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Is suffering, having a hardship, it won't come close to the glory of God that's coming. But there's another reason that this opposition must happen. Not only are we determined for affliction, but secondly, notice the designation of the adversary. The designation of the adversary. Verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, Paul writes, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. First off, understand that when Paul says for fear in verse 5, he's not phobic. He's not afraid that they're going to fall apart. That phrase for fear is literally may pos, may being not and pos being by any means. So translated that way, Paul is saying, I wanted to be sure that by no means was the tempter able to undermine your new faith. I wanted to check up and make sure it was all okay. By the way, 2 Thessalonians is a response to this very thing, which is again why maybe 2 Thessalonians was sent with Timothy on up. Because the tempter either had been or would be playing head games with the church in Thessalonica. Messing with them. And we'll see this very clearly in 2 Thessalonians. 
The tempter. The tempter. Pyrazo. And it's only twice that we see Satan called the tempter in the Bible. Only two times. This is the second time. Tempter, use of the word pyrazo, is, it's a verb and it means to tempt or to try or to entice. Or to be tempted, tried, enticed. We see the word temptation all over the place. But pyrazo in this case is the tempter. Ho pyrazo. And while it's usually a verb to describe what the devil and his demons do, here it is his name. Paul calls him the tempter. Where's the other place? Matthew chapter 4 verse 3. When it tells us the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So Paul, no doubt, by the Spirit, is remembering that Satan was called the tempter when he tempted Jesus. It's an important designation to understand. Because in John 8.44, Jesus says, He is a liar and the father of lies. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. But those, those references to Satan, liar, one who steals, kills, and destroys, tempter is a good name because what he does most against Christians is lie and steal. What about kill and destroy? Well, you know, yeah, he can kill the body, but not the spirit. It's the best he can do. He can try and get up and get in there and mess up and destroy things in your life. He cannot destroy you. But what he can do with the believer is lie to you and steal from you. Tempter implies that lying, stealing aspect of his character. What is he trying to do? He's trying to steal away what has been sown in your heart. You all know the parable of the sower and the soils. Let me read it to you. Just listen to the context here. Jesus says, Behold, Matthew 13, verse 3, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell along rocky places where they didn't have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, but because they had no depth of soil. When the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell among good soil, or on the good soil, and yielded a crop. Some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now later the apostles come to Jesus and they say, explain this to us. And so he does in Matthew uh, 13, 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the word is the seed and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The tempter steals. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown in rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when, listen, affliction comes, or persecution, because of the word, immediately he falls away. Listen, for opposition to be nutritive to your faith you got to be in the Word. If you don't have firm root, root, opposition will steal away. 
But then Jesus says, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, and indeed bears fruit and brings forth a hundredfold, sixty and thirty. So what's the point? Listen, the truth is, these aren't necessarily four different kinds of people. The soil represents the heart. And so what Jesus may very well be implying here is these are four types of soil and sometimes they're in the same heart. Sometimes my heart has rocky places. Sometimes my heart is like the side of the road or my heart has thorns in it. And then there's that good soil. And the question is, which soil are we going to have? How are we going to tend to and till the soil of the heart? Because the tempter comes along and he tries like a bird to snatch away the word before it's sown. That could happen this morning to you. If the heart is a little rocky today, maybe this is just one message that's not going to be heard. That's why I always pray that the Spirit embed the Word of God in our hearts, whether we want it or not. But the tempter will try to steal it away, and he will try to do it today. There's something you will hear or have heard he does not want you to hear, and he will try to steal it. The tempter can cause the word to wither in the heart by scorching affliction, as I said, because it hasn't taken root. Which is why the more intentive we are, or intentional we are with Bible study, the better, because then it starts to root into us, and when the afflictions blow against us, we stand strong. The tempter comes along and he tries to choke the word. And this is one of the most tragic things, and I have seen it many times in church fellowships. The tempter comes along and will sow in thorns of worry. He will sow in thorns of riches and wealth that will deceive. And one-time solid believers will start to have the fruitfulness of their lives choked out by the worry and deceitfulness of wealth in the world. It's one of the worst things that I've ever seen. When I see, and and I I had to deal with that here. I'm not going to name names. But several years ago, we were talking about money and faith and riches and wealth and faith and all that stuff and getting into it. And, And at that time, there were some who ended up leaving because they were really into the cash play of their lives. And when I see that type of thing, it's heartbreaking because what it is, it's thorns. And the tempter is sowing that in. Man, saintly soil. That is the heart that receives the word, number one, understands the word, number two, and thirdly, bears fruit. How do you know someone's really getting the word of God in their lives? Because there's fruit. There's fruit that comes of it. doesn't mean that you're fruity. It means there's fruit that comes of it. The fruit could be anything but from how... Oh, my, my attitude toward other people is more loving than it normally would have been. I, I find myself engaging with the message of Jesus more often. I, I have a different view than I had before. The fruit is a changed life and changed lives. And you know, it it strikes me that weeds have a harder time growing where the soil is taken up by well-tilled, cultivated, fruitful gardens. Those of you who garden know that. If you plant good things, 
You don't have to weed quite as much. But if you leave it, if you let it go for a season or so, you got weeds everywhere. Till the soil. Tend the garden of the heart. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But my Father is glorified in this, John 15, 8, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. How do you bear fruit? You till the heart. You care for the soil of the heart. Proverbs 13, 23, an interesting verse says, Abundant food is in the fallow ground, or that is the untilled soil of the poor. But it's swept away by injustice. What is he saying? He's saying that there's the potential there for fruitfulness in any heart, even in the poor heart. There is the potential for for plenty of abundance of, of food, but it gets swept away by injustice, or I might add, by the tempter who comes to try and steal it away. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 is a favorite verse and one to know. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Best way to break up the fallow ground, prayer and the ministry of the Word. That will break up the hard-hearted places in my life. That's what allows the Word to get in. When I am praying and I am in the Word of God. That's why those are the two things that Peter said back in Acts chapter 6 were the business of church leaders. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. The breaking up of the fallow ground so that the Word of God can be tilled and produce a great crop. So Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica kind of like a backhoe. I want you to go back there and break up any possible ground, plow the ground that has been hardened by affliction, and if necessary, replant the Word, Timothy. But what Timothy found there was a rich, cultivated soil thriving with good fruit. Number three, the delight in absence. The delight in absence, back in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Weiss translates that, now we are really living. Word comes back from Thessalonica with Timothy, and Paul says, yes! You know, this is good! Success on the second missionary journey. (laughs) Which hadn't seemed to be too successful up to that point. And he's like, now we're really living. Now we're alive. This is good. Do you realize how much your faith, no matter how young or new, can either delight or douse the faith of other people? You want to talk about fruitfulness. Sometimes just your expression of faith brings great delight to another believer. Great encouragement. When we talk about showing up, when we talk about fellowship, and not being lone believers, but being part 
of a larger fellowship of believers, when you walk in the door, most of us, when we walk in, are not thinking about the fact that my faith is here to help other faith. That my presence is here for somebody else. That perhaps I'm not here today for me. I I brought this up. I talked about it Wednesday night. Every now and then we think about this thing. Do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. Why? Because the encouragement that comes of it is amazing. Rick, why do you keep preaching week in and week out? Because I get to look at you. And it's a good thing. Because what I see is faith. I see people growing in the Lord. I see people change. And man, I can't even tell you what that does to me. Being out at the campsite on Friday night, looking out at 150 people spread out there as we're worshiping, as I did a little teaching, and everybody's listening and everybody's into the Word, and I just walk away from that going, this is so cool. I'm just lit up. All the way home, I was thinking back over all these years that we've been a fellowship at the bridge and who's been here and how many people have been here long term. And it's just, I, I can't describe to you what it does to me personally. Seeing Tom play the bass every Sunday for 13 years. Sorry to call you out, bro. I know you hate that. But we needed a bass player. We were going to have our first Sunday service. And we're like, we've we got to put together a little worship band. God provided a worship band complete with guitar, keyboards, vocalists, and bass. And a drummer on the very first Sunday morning that we had. It's amazing. And we cannot get rid of Tom. <laughs> and I praise God for you, Tom and Jackie. From day one and before that, it's what it does to my faith. They don't think about that. They're not, they're not thinking about it. You're not thinking about, well, I'm, i got to be there Sunday morning because otherwise Rick's going to be really bummed out. <laughs> I hope that's not why you come, but I'll tell you what. Your faith increases my faith. That's what Paul's saying to Thessalonica. We found out you guys were faithful. Man, now we're really living. This is the life. Not having a beer on a beach. This is the life. And D.L. Moody said, one, or out of 100 men, one will read the Bible, 99 will read the Christian. Good word. And even other Christians, man, we read each other. So, with Paul and, and Thessalonica, there's this mutual delight in each other, in spite of their absence, delight in absence, a shared encouragement of faith that is growing and expressed even in afflictions. Verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may seek your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Well, I'm a little offended at that, Paul. What do you mean what's lacking in my faith? How dare you? I mean, think about it. If a brother or sister walked up to you and said, listen, we got to talk because I want to try and complete what's lacking in your faith. I wouldn't take that well. But Paul doesn't mean it pejoratively. It's not a negative coming from him. The word lacking, it simply means incomplete or deficient. It means coming up short. It means you haven't quite arrived. Anyone here think that you have arrived in your faith? Let me just see a show of hands. I'm so glad. 
<laughs> to see that no one else raised their hand but me. <laughs> Are you lacking in your faith? I think every Christian would say, of course I am. Absolutely I am. In fact, this whole issue of walking as saints together, part of the difficulty is we just don't see ourselves that way. We, are, we see ourselves for who we really are. You know, people around us don't realize what's going on in the little ticker in here and how, boy, I'm so glad you don't really see me for who I am. You know what? I'm so glad God sees me as He has chosen to see me. I'm so glad God sees me as a holy one, as a saint. But because we all know we're we're lacking, you know, Paul is just pointing out, he's being compassionately corrective here. I want to come back. I, I want to finish what we started. And Paul's persistence in that, man, it still benefits us today. Do you realize that because Paul wants to complete what is lacking in their faith, he wrote 2 Thessalonians? And he wrote the 4th and 5th chapter of 1 Thessalonians, that we get these two letters because Paul wanted to complete what was lacking in the faith of the Thessalonians. And that completion impacts our faith even now, 2,000 years later. That our faith would grow and would ultimately become complete. We have, in these two letters, substantial end times doctrine, and we haven't even scratched the surface yet. We'll start to in just a minute, and then next week we're going to hit the rapture of the church. Maybe before that, in reality. But we'll talk about it, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll start to get into what does the Bible teach about the rapture of the church? Is this biblical, or is this just Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series? Is it just fiction? No. But we'll get there. And then as I told you last week, all of the prophecy that is in First and Second Thessalonians is here because Paul wanted to complete what was lacking in their faith. So what is that? What was lacking? I mean, the obvious answer is doctrine. Coming out of pagan society... They needed completion in the teaching. They needed more understanding of the doctrines of truth, of the doctrines coming right out of the Hebrew prophets and the Hebrew scriptures and right on into Christian theology and understanding. They needed that completion. But saints, there's something else that was missing. Something else that was lacking at Thessalonica that is lacking at the Bridge Christian Fellowship as well. Are you ready? Love. It's love. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. I want to complete what's lacking in your faith and the number one thing lacking in All our faith, brothers and sisters, is love. This is number four, the direction to abound. The direction to abound in love. Hey, the work of faith, great. Steadfastness of hope, wonderful. But these two things are nothing without the labor of love. The love is what matters. The love is where we are headed. The love is our direction. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest is love. And without love, you can have faith to move mountains. But without love, you're nothing. 
You can have all the hope in the world, but if there's not love there, well, Paul says you're just a clean symbol. Love is the completion of our faith. Now, are you saying, Rick, that love is lacking at the bridge? I'm saying love is lacking in the church. Not lacking in the negative sense, but lacking in that we are not complete. Love is not complete in me. Love is not complete in you until Jesus comes. And then we'll be complete in love. Then we'll know what it really means to move 100% in agape, unconditional godly love. But what Paul's getting at, and I think it's so profound here, is that above all other doctrinal faith issues, love is paramount. For as we learn to love each other, we learn God. The more I love you, the more I am like God. And the world needs to see that. Saintliness. The world needs to see saints who love each other. The world needs to see pure people operating from a position of love. Practical Christian living is impractical without the practice of godly love. If we don't love, all the great doctrine in the world is useless to us. And so I ask you a question that I asked you a couple of weeks ago when we were in Philippians 4. Euodia, Sun Tuke, how's your love? Paul really tags it when he talks about those two precious sisters, co-laborers in the Gospel with him, Euodia and Sintuke, but he really nails it when he gets right down to them and says, I want you to be like-minded. Live in harmony one with another. You can be on the Gospel train, you can be sleeves rolled up, working hard for the Kingdom, but if you're not loving each other, you're undermining everything you're doing. Ever found yourself perhaps at a restaurant? After a Sunday morning, grousing about somebody at your church, what does that say to the non-believer the next table over? That's typical Christian. Oh, they tout all these things, but they hate each other. We're lacking in love. I'm not addressing anything going on in the bridge right now, by the way. All I see is love. But you know, I know, is there anybody in our fellowship? Is there any brother or sister in Christ Jesus that you have a hard time with? That you just as soon walk the other way when they come in? We're lacking in love. And this is a critical issue. First century Rome didn't know what to do with Christians. This was a new thing. You know, they they weren't Jews and they weren't pagans. They're this whole new breed of people. They're teaching something. What is up with them? And so something that began to happen in the first century is the Roman government began to send spies into Christian assemblies to figure out what is up with this group of people. Are they a threat to the Caesar? Are they a danger to the empire? So they would send these spies out and then the spies would come back and report on this strange movement. Tertullian actually preserved for us one of these reports. Listen to it. These Christians are a strange people. They meet together in an empty room to worship. They don't have an image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. 
My, how they love Him. And oh, how they love each other. If the Trump administration were to send spies to the Bridge Christian Fellowship today, what would they report? What would they say about us? Now, they, they worship in an empty room. TV screens and a big rock monstrosity. They're strange people. I don't understand them. But oh, how they love Jesus. They seem to expect Him at any time. And oh, how they love each other. Jesus said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. You know what made it a new commandment? God had already told them to love one another. But now Jesus says, I want you to do it the way I did. That's what made it new. Jesus made the command to love new because now He was able to say, love each other like this. And He went to the cross. Love each other the way I have shown love to you. By this all men will know that you're My disciples if you have love for one another. Not kindness, not niceness, not compassion, but unconditional self-sacrificial love. I will put Myself down that you might be raised up. That's love. And Jesus says, that's the way I want you to do it. And Paul now prays that the Lord would cause the Thessalonians to, to increase and to abound in love for one another. Love is what was lacking. And so he says, I want to complete what's lacking in your faith. What's lacking, Paul? Love is. Love, holy, unadulterated, pure, unconditional love. And until we love the way God loves us, it will be lacking. Note that purity and holiness are very much aspects of love. That, I think, is in the church something that is very misunderstood because a lot of people are canceling out purity thinking that love is just accepting anybody no matter how impure the situation may be. No, purity is a part of love. Holiness. God is absolutely righteous and holy and yet nobody loves like God does. That's the love that we are called to. And love, my friends, is our destiny. I have one more point for you this morning. George McFly. That's not the point. George McFly walks up to Lorraine in the soda shop, Back to the Future, if you've seen the movie, you know. And he says, with a piece of paper, he walks up to her and he goes, Lorraine, my density has brought me to you. She looks at him and goes, what? <laughs> oh, what I, what I meant to say was, I'm George. George McFly. I'm your density. I mean, I'm your destiny. <laughs> Most ideas of destiny in this world are pretty dense. They really are speaking about density. But in Jesus, we have a destiny. And this is point number five. It is the destiny of the appearing. The destiny of the appearing. Saints, listen up. It is our destiny to McFly, I mean, to, to fly. It's our destiny to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the harpazo. It's the raptus, the rapture. And the rapture of the church is what Paul is going to talk about in chapter 4. So again, hopefully next week we will get to that. However, saints, get this. 
Our destiny goes beyond the rapture. Our destiny goes to the appearing. And in the end of this chapter, Paul gives to me what is one of the most exhilarating prophetic promises in all of Scripture, the destiny of our appearing. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts. Wait a minute, so that, what do you mean so that? He wants us to abound in love. Love is critical, love is vital. Why? So that... He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. What does that tell you? It tells us that when Jesus comes back, we come back with Him. That the saints return with the Son. It is the destiny of appearing. Now, let me explain this a little bit to you. With one exception, what Paul tells us in verse 13 is a repeat of the earliest prophetic promise ever given in Scripture. There's one that was earlier, the one exception, the one prophecy that came before this. And that's the prophecy that God spoke in the garden, talking to the serpent, to Satan. He says, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, Satan, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that prophecy, first one in Scripture, is called the Proto-Evangelicum. It's the first mention of the Gospel. Where God says to Satan, you're going to bruise his heel. And as the nails went through the feet of Jesus into the cross, his heels would have been bruised up horrifically. But he will bruise you on the head. That is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his coming in glory will profoundly wound Satan to the point that he is thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the first prophecy, the earliest one on record. But if from that point in the garden you just go about 600 years or so forward from then, or for us back about 53 to 5400 years from now, you hear the first mention, the first second prophecy in the Bible, but it's the first mention of Jesus coming with all His saints. That's amazing to me because over five millennia ago, God already was talking about this. He was already sharing what was sure to come, what was destined to happen. Listen to the prophecy. Jude is the one that God used to preserve it for us. Jude, verse 4, says, Certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now Jude is talking about this. He is warning against those who are creeping into the church, perhaps progressive evangelicals, I don't know. Those who are bringing a message of watered-down purity, of, of messy holiness, of not really living by the standards of God's Word, but living by the standards of culture. And he says, I'm warning you, these people are coming. But then, listen, he says in verse 14, it was also about these men, these interlopers, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, Enoch, He's listed there in Genesis chapter 5. He's mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 11. Enoch who walked with God and was no more for God took him. Enoch who was the first man to be raptured, to be caught up. Enoch was a prophet. Enoch had a son named Methuselah. Why did he name him Methuselah? Not just because it was a cool name. But because Methuselah means in his death it shall come, and Methuselah was a prophetic name for the coming of the flood. 
Enoch was a prophet. And Jude reminds us, he says, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. And there it is. Well, yeah, but His holy ones, I mean, that could, that could be angels, right? I mean, I've seen in the Bible another place that tells us Jesus is going to come and He's going to come with His holy angels. You're right, it does. But hone in on that. Understand this. The Lord came with many thousands. The phrase many thousands is murios. It's where we get our word myriad. In other words, it is innumerable, an innumerable multitude following after Jesus when He comes. He comes with a myriad of His holy ones, and holy ones is hagios, saints. Let me put a really fine point on this. The term hagios refers exclusively to the people of God and never in Scripture does it refer to angels. When you see the kadosh in the Hebrew Scriptures, when you see the hagios in the New Testament, it is only always applied to people who are saved by Jesus. The people of God. And in fact, back in Zechariah, I just got to read this to you, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. It reads, in that day his feet, speaking of Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives, talking about the return of Jesus. And then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Zechariah prophesied about it. Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied about it. Paul comes along. He begins to talk about it right here in 1 Thessalonians 3 and 13. And he's talking about the holy ones. And the holy ones are saints. And the saints are you. The destiny of appearing. Paul says also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Coming with His saints to be glorified in His saints. So get this. The next event on God's prophetic calendar, what Scripture teaches, the next event is the rapture of the church. That is being called out, going home to be with Jesus. That's coming next week. The teaching is. Or perhaps the rapture. And then, and then seven years of tribulation will occur on the earth. At some time soon after that. We will be at that time, having been caught up, sheltered safely in heaven. We will be with Jesus and the Christian who says, No, I want to be left behind for the tribulation to duke it out. You're an idiot. (laughs) That's not your destiny. I will prove that to you. That is not your destiny to go through the tribulation and then perhaps to meet up with Jesus after that messy time. No. No intelligent soldier wants to go to war. So we'll be called out. Tribulation happens. We're in heaven at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8 tell us. And then comes the appearing, the glorious appearing of Jesus. That is His second coming, as we call it, the parousia. Enoch, Zechariah, Paul, all talk about it, and it's finally portrayed by John. Here comes Jesus, and with Him, all the saints. 
He comes with all the saints. Revelation 19.14 And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Why in the world would any thinking army be clothed in white linen, fine and clean? Because it's a bridal gown. Because it's wedding clothes. And that's the exact description of the bride of Christ in Revelation 7, uh, 19, verses 7 and 8. And then in verse 14, here comes Jesus. Man, He's returning on that white seed. He's riding in. And He is coming with all His saints. It's us. We will be tracing His trail through the heavens. Coming back to earth with Jesus. Revelation 1.6, Revelation 5.10, Revelation 20 verse 6 tell us we are coming back with Him. Why? Because we're to be a kingdom of priests. We are to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. Does it sound like a fairy tale to you? It did to me. Before I saw it all written in Scripture. And before I realized that Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture makes it absolutely and literally clear these things are promised. These things are prophesied. We will be caught up to meet Him in the clouds, in the air. We will be with Jesus in that marriage feast of the Lamb. The tribulation is going to hit this earth. It is going to cover the globe. It will be seven years of the wrath of God being poured out. And at the end of that, we will return with Him to set foot on the earth and enter into then the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And if that's not enough for you, after that is the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and it just goes on and on into eternity. And this is the promise to us. Why? Must we abound and increase in love with all the saints right now? So that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. I want to be a saint now because I want my wedding garments to be saintly then. To love each other now because we're going to be loving each other then. That's going to be the standard of the kingdom. Are we ready? Are you ready today? Are you ready to put on that wedding attire? To live saintly? Are you living for that purpose? To that point? It was given to her, Revelation 19.8, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Father, make us saintly. Jesus, I pray that You would give us a deep hunger for holiness, a passion for purity, Not a people who cave in and engage in cultural unrighteousness because it's cool. Make us different, Lord. May our words be different. May our behaviors be different. May our joys and our passions be different. May our thoughts be different. And not just to be different, but may we in all these things be a people who are holy and pure, called as saints of the Most High God. 
And Father, as we pray this this morning, I pray conviction would come. I pray we would all recognize what is lacking in our faith, what we need so desperately. Show us, Father, what it means to love each other like never before. And increase in us the desire to be righteous and holy before You. For You have called us righteous. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.